here for the first time, we're, we're so thankful that you're here with us. We pray that week after week, our, uh, this will be a place where you could come and be revived and refreshed. Um, you know, th- today we have a, a special guest with us that's going to be bringing the word, Pastor Tanner. He's the lead pastor uh, of Port City Church in Norfolk, Virginia. And something I love about Tanner is, uh, one, he's just a gifted brother. He's a, he, he's a gifted brother. You're going to learn that real quick. But also, something that's kind of unique and special is that about six years ago, me and, uh, me and Tanner, we used to go and just preach to each other uh, one-to-one in a small little room. We we're like, we think we want to start preaching, and we would just preach to each other. Uh, and it was, we would just roast each other. Uh, after we would preach, and it was a very refining process for both of us. And so I'm excited. Tanner, come on, come on up. Uh, I'm excited to have Tanner with us. Uh, it's going to be a special guest. So give a round of applause for Tanner. Thanks, bro. That's a true story, y'all. Me and Eric just in a room and just preach it to each other. It's a true story. That was, those were the glory days, man, you know. Um, well, hey, I'm, I'm thankful to be here with you. I'm currently in Greensboro, North Carolina. My wife, Sam, is right here. Um, and I'm good friends with Eric and Kelly. We love them. Um, and y'all, seriously, like, that room happened because Eric invited me in and said, hey, I just want us to get better at preaching, and I want to help you. And, like, he just invests a lot of his personal time into me, um, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, so if y'all think this isn't great, imagine what it would have been, like, five years ago, you know? And I've heard, I've heard a lot of Eric's sermons. So, um, yeah, I'm thankful to be here with you. And yeah, we are planting a church in Norfolk, Virginia. So um, yeah, it's, we're, we're really excited. We're moving there in June. Uh, right now, our team is 15 adults. Uh, we got 14 kids, so please pray for us, okay? We've got like a one-to-one ratio. Um, I have three kids, Maverick, Eden, and Piper. I used to be a math teacher for a few years, you know? I became a believer 12 years ago in college at NC State. Go Pack. Uh, so yeah. I remember what it is to be lost, you know. I, I didn't grow up a preacher's kid or something like that, you know. Like, I remember thinking this was stupid, you know. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, what is this place? Uh, I remember that feeling as well. So I'm just honored to be here with you and to, to continue in our series in Ephesians, talking about gospel identity. So if you got a Bible, you can go to Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're, you're turning there... Uh, a little bit what the book of Ephesians is doing for us is it kind of shifts from uh, just gospel bombs and identity and truth and who Jesus is, and the back half of the book is all just practical. Now, this is how we, we do this thing. And we're kind of in the middle, and last week you should have heard from Pastor AJ on um, verses 1 through 10, and it was all about kind of you and God and where you used to be. And now we're going to start talking about us and God a little bit, not just me and God, but us and God. And in a lot of ways, what the book of Ephesians is helping us understand is that the game has changed. Jesus has changed the game. That's what he's done. And I was like, what are other ways that, that a game has changed? I was thinking about basketball. The, the three-point line was added in basketball in 1979, okay? Um, I don't know if y'all remember in Space Jam number one. I haven't seen number two yet. We need to watch that. I think my kids have seen it, but I have not. Uh, but in the first Space Jam, y'all remember that little old video they showed to describe basketball to the to the aliens and the looney tunes and stuff and it's like just a bunch of dudes passing around they're leaving them wide open they can't shoot at all it's like underhand shooting well in 1979 the three-point line came out i mean you go back and watch even in the 90s which some people feel is the purest era of basketball i won't tell you where i'm at on that but even then like a dude hitting a couple of threes in a game was a big deal the game will never be the same since they've added that line. I mean, they've even joked with adding a four-point line at this point. They're not going to do it, praise the Lord. But 
you have to pick up guys at like half court now because they just launched that thing, you know. And back in the day, like that was unheard of. They were leaving people wide open. It just the game will never be the same. You see, it changes how little kids go to the YMCA now, you know, like how they envision themselves playing basketball. Like they go there and they're just launching. You talk to anybody who coaches uh, underage sports right now and they just they're emulating what they see. Right. So it changes how I go practice as a basketball player, but it also changes how we play together. Like the way teams are approaching things are different than they did years back. The way coaches are coaching this thing is different. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks a few years back added a four-point line just in practice just so they could teach their players to start guarding one another out at half court almost because you can't just let guys walk up and shoot anymore. So the game has changed. What the book of Ephesians is trying to get us to understand in every conceivable way, Jesus has changed the game. It's changed how you relate to God, and it has changed how you relate to one another. The new Adam has come. Uh, the old Adam is gone. We are a new humanity. And it's not just that Jesus died for your sins. That is true, and that is great. But there is all kinds of implications of how God wants to live life with you and teaches people to live with one another. So we've got to learn this new game, and the book of Ephesians is trying to take us into it. Here's our main idea, if you are taking notes this weekend. Jesus has brought his followers into peace with God and with one another. Jesus has brought his followers into peace with God and with one another. And our passage this weekend is a little technical, okay? Uh, this weekend, probably next week's sermon, we'll have some technical elements of how has the game changed specifically. We're going to talk Jew and Gentile. We're going to talk some first century dynamics a little bit, but it's going to flow from the technical to the practical. Are you tracking with me? Another thing about me, I used to be a math teacher, so I interact with my, my classroom, so to speak, okay? So that's just how I roll, all right? So we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 2. Uh, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses, so look for the big two, the little 11, and we're going to go to 16. Here we go. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, so I told you it's a little technical. There might be some words in there. You're like, what does that mean? And we're going to talk about it, okay? A lot of Christians have probably read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, thousands of times if you've been walking with Jesus for a while. And these verses, maybe a handful of times, okay? So we're going to talk about what, what Paul is trying to do, okay? So we're just going to walk verse by verse, and then we'll kind of talk about what I think uh, the writer of this, Paul, wants us to take away from it. Are y'all with me? Okay, from the technical to the practical, here we go. Verse 11 said this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, Paul is talking to a Gentile audience. Somebody say Gentile. Okay, so the Jews, the Jewish people, is, is who the Lord chose all the way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Okay, you read the Old Testament, you got the people of Israel. And then in the first century, 
uh, the, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, started exploding across ethnic lines in ways that it never had before. Okay? So some of what Paul is going to break down for us is the difference between what God intended for thousands of years through the Jews versus what kind of ended up happening. Okay? So we've got to delineate what God intended versus what kind of happened. And right off the bat, what Paul is saying is, y'all are called the uncircumcision Gentiles. What that means is you get, this is first century smack talk. That's what that is. Y'all get called the uncircumcision. So people, the Jews would look at them and say, y'all are the uncircumcision, meaning you have not been circumcised. This was the seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that all of those who shared the faith of Abraham on the eighth day would be circumcised. Okay, that was that was the idea. This is how you would be my covenant people. Well, what came to pass over time was that instead of it being a marker of something that was true of the inward of the heart, the shared faith of Abraham is over time, not because of God's intentions, but because of what man did with it. It just became, are you circumcised or not? Are you a Jewish or not? Right. So it became a very clear, you are not a Jew, right? Like you, you are the uncircumcision. So what Paul is doing by saying you who were at one time called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, he's actually taking a jab at the Jews as well. Because we if you didn't know this, Paul is of Jewish lineage. Okay, so he's basically saying, I know what's going on. I know that y'all been picked on for not being circumcised by the people who are outwardly circumcised. And by saying that he's taking a jab at. But were they inwardly at the heart circumcised as God intended it with Abraham? That's up for you to decide. Are you tracking what Paul's doing? He's kind of making fun of those who were making fun of them. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, the game has changed, Gentiles, and let me break it down for you. And I know y'all been getting picked on. And in so doing, he's saying, I've seen what you've been through. I've seen how you've been kind of tormented a little bit for not having the outward mark. Are y'all with me so far? Let's keep progressing into what he's trying to say. Verse 12. Remember... That you were at that time, when they were calling you that, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Somebody say, remember. Remember. He's trying to say, Gentiles, remember what it was like before you heard this good news. Now, when you read that it says that they were alienated, they were strangers, they were without God, the question becomes, What do you mean by that? Like, just because I was a Gentile, was I automatically separated and had no hope? Was it that a Gentile before Jesus had no way of being in with God? Is that what Paul means? That is not what Paul means. Again, we've got to understand the difference between what it functionally became over the centuries versus what God intended it. Uh, Some of y'all are probably Old Testament big-time readers, but if you go back and read what God always intended— was that the people of God, his chosen people, would become the light to the world, the demonstration community of what it looks like when Yahweh is your God. You get something different that nobody else gets, and through that, others are to be grafted in, and the goodness of God is to be seen by what I do for you. I want to do for all, right? I want to do this for everybody. So y'all go be my kingdom of priests. I'm going to get y'all out of Egypt, and then the whole world's going to know, and y'all going to display this thing, and we're about to get it popping. And you'll see little trickles of this with Rahab, right? You'll see like people getting grafted in or you'll go read the book of Jonah. And this is kind of what God intended to be the norm. But if you've read your Old Testament, this wasn't really the norm, was it? This was kind of the one-offs where where the, the grafting in was happening. And that was not what God intended, but that's kind of what it became because of uh, 
sin, right? Because of uh, the hard hearts of God's people. So what was supposed to be this mark that represented, y'all are my special chosen people and you've got a God nobody else has got. You've got a father who loves you and you're being led by a pillar of fire and you've been through the Red Sea and all this amazing stuff. It just became nana nana boo boo. I got a mark and you don't. And what you going to do about it? Does that make sense? Not because of what God intended, but because of the failure of the Jews to be circumcised at the heart level by and large. Not true of all of them, but it was by and large true. Are we still in it? If you're in it, say I'm in it. Okay, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's, try- he's trying to say the game has changed through the blood of Christ. He has done something that just changes things forever. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, us both being Gentile and Jew, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So you can imagine this being read out loud to a congregation of former Jews and of Gentiles together. And he uses that word, our. Somebody say, our. So he's saying, Gentiles, this isn't just your peace. This is our peace. Me, me a Jew, Paul, and you, a Gentile. This is ours. So Jesus has changed the game that, that once felt like for one group is now our thing through the blood of Jesus. I can imagine even as they're reading it, they'd pick up on that pronoun real quick. They'd be like, ours. Like, I, I share what, what they've got. There's no front of the bus, back of the bus. It's just we're in with Jesus by his blood. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And I'll go ahead and read 16 as well. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, in verse 14, if you have a Bible, you can underline dividing wall of hostility. Okay, what Paul is trying to say is there was a wall separating some things. Okay, there was, there was hostility between Jew and Gentile. There was a problem before Jesus. The question becomes, what is the problem? What is the wall? If you go read, there's all kinds of books, y'all. What is the dividing wall? Scholars debate this, okay, at high levels. Some people literally think it was a wall, like in Israel. Like literally this wall is here and y'all are there and we're here. But if you read verses 15 and 16, it answers how Jesus broke down the wall. And he did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So there's something about the law and what Jesus has done that has changed the game. So what does that mean? Basically, this is what it means. And I keep, I keep saying this line of it's the difference between what God intended and what it became. Okay? Part of how God led his people out of Egypt, he started giving them laws. Okay? Ten Commandments is the most famous example of that. But there were many more laws than just the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments were the, the moral law, but you also had ceremonial law. You had all kinds of cleanliness laws. But what these laws were intended to do, my friends, was to set them apart as a people that are different. This is how we treat each other's property when you're, when you're with Yahweh. This is how we treat one another. This is how we take care of each other's cattle. This is how we take care of people who work for us. This is how we do everything. It was supposed to set up a group of people who were flourishing in the world unlike any other community. And then all those people would be like, we want to flourish like them. We want our crops to grow like them. We want peace between each other. We don't want murder like we got in our stuff. Let's go talk to the Jewish people. 
But as time progressed, the laws just became things that they were doing, and it wasn't necessarily leading to a flourishing community where others want a piece of that pie. It just became a, this is what makes us different from you. Does that make sense? Instead of a marker that resembled and, and pointed to how blessed we are by God and how we're flourishing and there's no one like us on earth, not because we're special, but because God has made us special, right? Uh, he says in Deuteronomy 8, Israel, don't get it twisted. I didn't choose you because you were special. I chose you because I chose you. And you're like, huh? And he's like, yeah, that's kind of the point. I love you because I love you. You're not lovely. I make you lovely, right? So they weren't chosen because they were special. They were special because they were chosen. And so what God intended by the giving of all the law, moral, ceremonial, all that, was to create a people so unique, so unlike any other on earth, so special that everyone would want a piece of that pie, see how good Yahweh is, but over time, because of sin, because man is what it is, we are who we are, it just became a, this is what makes us different from you. Y'all go stand over there. We're going to leverage what makes us different to like being different. You could see how this might play out over years. And now I'm going to call you names like uncircumcision. Now I'm going to make fun of you for the ways your culture and the way you look. And it just became more and more cultural issues that when Christ came, what he did is fully fulfill the law in all of its elements. And in so doing, the cultural elements and distinctives were removed, and it's like a wall fell down. That doesn't mean the law was the problem. It means that the, the people God had chosen could not, in their hearts, become who God had called them to be, and something new had to be done. Are you tracking with me? So Christ came and fulfilled the law, and in so doing, it is almost like, the, the Great Wall of China just fell down between two groups of people because what he did so removed all of the issues that they had with being different in the heart level. They just became different on the cultural level and wore it like a badge of honor, and it became a problem and an obstacle to God instead of a path to God. What God intended to bring them together was actually becoming a wall for years and years and years, and it felt like these were two different sides of a bus or something like that. And when Christ came, he said, the game has changed. If you're with me, say I'm with you. So that's the technical, technical, technical Jew-Gentile breakdown, okay? Now, this is 2023. This is New City Church. This is Tampa Bay. This is Tampa, Florida, okay? And pretty much everybody in this room is going to fall into the Gentile category, okay? Unless you are of Jewish lineage and you are in by the blood of Jesus with him. And we don't necessarily have all of Jew-Gentile hostilities, but I think the Apostle Paul's word still is applicable to us here today. Are y'all ready to break this down? We're going to talk about how God has moved us from strangers to saints to siblings. Let's start with strangers. Let's start with strangers. So verses 11 and 12 told us, therefore, remember. Somebody say remember. If you have a Bible, that is the only thing we are told to do in these six verses here today. So that's the only action to us is remember. Therefore, remember. That's our job today. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, which is probably all of us, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What Paul is trying to say, remember what it was like before Jesus came. And hopefully today you can remember what that was like. What was that like? Without God in the world, no hope. 
kind of a resignation, resign. You just, it just is what it is. It's like when it's super cold and it's so cold and you know you can't do nothing about it, you're like, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, y'all know what I'm talking about? In Florida, you don't struggle with that as much. Maybe it's on the other side, the hotness. It's like, it's so hot. My kid's a little fan is out of the batteries. It's hot in here right now. Amen, somebody. That's right. But AJ just got us right. He turned it down. That's a good pastor. Love you, AJ. But there's a resignation. There's a, I can't do anything about it. That's what resign means. I'm without hope, and I can't change the situation. And what Paul is trying to say is remember that. Remember that, what it's like without God, to have no hope. It's interesting that he's telling them to remember being hopeless. I don't know about you, but when I was 18, I would have been like, I'm hopeless. I wasn't walking down the halls of NC State like, I'm just hopeless, looking for the Lord to come save me. Part of the irony is that you're remembering a time where you thought you had it made in your sin, aren't you? I don't know about you. I loved my sin. (laughs) I loved trying to make people like me. I loved every second of my day for a long time. And he's telling us to remember what it was like when it, when it changed you, you never want to go back. There's a song I like, it goes like this. I was like a zombie till I was awakened, chasing all the Barbies, trying to get the bacon. And that song hits me because I'm like, yeah. When I look back, I'm like, I was like a zombie. It's like, I don't even know what I was doing for 18 years. I really don't know what I was doing. I know what I was doing. I was trying to get you to worship me. I was chasing whatever I could get my hands on. I remember that. And he's saying, remember what that was like to just be living for the weekend. Remember what it was like to just want people to worship you. Remember when that's all you had. And there's two types of remembering. There's like a remember, the kids, you got to pick them up today. Like, remember that. Don't like, like a, a little, don't forget this, you know. Or there's a remember what it was like to be like a, a death row inmate with no hope. And you just waiting for execution day. That's a different kind of remembering, you know? And I think that's what Paul has in mind here is remember once the news of what Christ has done, once the news that you are enslaved to sin comes in, and there's kind of a you'll never forget after that, you know? Let me ask you this here today, New City. Where would we be without the interruption of the grace of God? If you are in Christ, God interrupted your life. He might have done it at six years old. Might have done it at 19, might have done it on a college campus. You might have been in your 40s in the workplace and just you began to hear the story of what God has done in the world and what he wants to do in your life. But it is an interruption. Sin is not what we were made to do. It is not the story we were meant to live. We were meant to live in God's image for his glory, an outward life of focusing on the good of others and the glory of God instead of an inward life of sucking the life out of everything for your own good and glory and to make people love you and worship you. You weren't made for that. And maybe you're here today, and you're kind of like I was at 18 years old. You're like, I ain't ain't following Jesus nothing, but I wouldn't say I'm hopeless, T. That's kind of harsh. I I believe there's a God or something like that. I'm not no atheist, but like, I I, I, I ain't like, I ain't hopeless. Maybe you would say that. And part of what God is kind to do is to interrupt your life and say, really? And there comes a moment, I remember a dude asked me, he was like, Tanner, why'd you get out of bed this morning when I was 18? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. And it was questions like that. It was reading verses like this. It was really looking into the story of what God is doing in the world and where he's taking us and really contemplating it. It was an interruption in my life. Maybe God is interrupting your life here today. I just want you to hear that this story of what God has done is so much bigger than 
you are a sinner and you go into hell. Listen, God wants to live life with you, friend. He wants to live every second of every day. He doesn't want to give you a ticket out of hell. He wants to give you a new view of reality and infuse every second with his purpose, what he created you for, and not to live life just drawing all resources to yourself. Like he wants to make you a conduit of goodness and grace and for your first thought to be for the good of others. Not to have to conjure it like a New Year's resolution, but it's almost like a spirit of something outside of you is infusing you with care for others. That's what God is after where it becomes effortless and good to live for others. And yes, you're still going to be a sinner, and I am, I can assure you, and you're going to have struggles, but he wants to change the engine inside your heart. He wants to give you a new engine. He wants to change everything about you. This is so much bigger than waiting in a line one day, standing before the Lord, like, I got this ticket at this camp one year. It was a good speaker and good music. No, he wants the engine that is your heart to change He's going to give you a new one in every second from there on in every direction you're headed and the reason you do it will be different. That's what God is after in your life. And to the believers in this room, he's saying, remember what your old engine was and what it was producing. Remember. Remember. If God is drawing you to himself, part of it starts with hopelessness. And that is an amazing gift for you to just realize the gig is up. I don't want to do this no more. And if that is you, uh, on behalf of Pastor Eric, I'm sure we got some people in here who would like to talk to you before you leave today. If you're like, man, I want that. I want to put my trust in Christ. I want to repent of my sin. I want to follow him. I want a new engine. Please come talk to somebody before you leave today. We would love to talk to you. Okay, so that's what it was to be a stranger. It's like you didn't even know that you didn't know there was a God this good. You didn't even know there was a new engine possible. You just thought this is what it is. This is the way life goes. What other option is there? I get to choose certain things within it, but by and large, what other hope do I have? But once we hear the good news and it comes in, there is, we're not strangers anymore. When Christ came, the Gentiles, it's like they started hearing, like, that's available to us? Like, and it's like, yes, it is. Now, by hearing that, it changes the game. So we were strangers, but now we are saints. Somebody say saints. The Gentiles are saints now. And part of what what Paul is trying to do in the first century is he keeps reminding them like, hey, you're no second class citizen now. You fronted a bus. We all fronted a bus because of what Christ has done. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What Christ has done is brought us in in his flesh. I would encourage you to underline that, in his flesh. Be reminded, friends, your goodness is not why you're in today, Christian. It's his flesh was ripped apart. He was crushed that we might be brought in. The cost of our peace with God was the dismantling of the Son of God. It has nothing to do with anything about you turning around anything in your life. It is what Christ did. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. His flesh was ripped apart. The cross is what it costs, and the cross is where he was willing to go. I say it like this. We were so lost, it took the cross to save us. We were so loved, Jesus took the cross to save us. 
Y'all, the cross is a reminder of just how bad it was. That's what it took to make it right, right? The, the cost of our peace was that cross. It was very intentional that he was murdered the way he was because that's how bad our sin is. That's how bad our situation was. That's how far gone we were. But it's also a demonstration of the lengths to which God would go to make it right. It's simultaneously like whoever has to be died for like that is pretty bad. But whoever's willing to take that death like that must think it's worth it to come make it happen. Are you tracking? So it should be an announcement from God, like, look at my love for you. And it's also a reminder from God, like, I'm jacked up, you know? And now I want, I want what I want to do, somebody say the word peace. I don't know what comes to your mind here today when you hear the word peace. And this is what we're going to start pressing into in our time, the rest of our time together. Y'all, Romans 5 says that, Jesus, like, if his death brought us in, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Here's the idea. Peace is more than just nicety. It's more than just, oh, I'm not against that person anymore. It is, I am for you, and I'm moving towards you with intimacy. What Christ has done, y'all, is it's, it, the peace is the foundation by which we get intimacy with God and creativity with God. He wants to build a new world with us. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take us back to the garden and build things new and give us jobs and, and live life with us. Peace is just the beginning. Like me not being against you and being your enemy, like the whole point of, of God bringing us into that and dying on the cross was now we've got a new beginning. The peace should be defined by intimacy and shared creativity with God. The purpose of our peace with God is to produce a flourishing life of intimacy and creativity with the one God who made us in his image. That is the reason Christ died, was to bring you in to live a new life with you. It is so much more than God's not mad at you anymore for your sin. It's let's start living life together. The peace is the foundation of the intimacy he wants to take off in your life with you. That's what you have with God now. So much more than he's not mad at you. He died for that sin. The peace is just the beginning. So, this is, this is kind of the, the, what he's trying to do. The peace we have with God, we also now have with one another. If I'm a saint and you a saint, we saints. If the Gentiles are saints, if the Jews are saints, we are saints together. So, so what God is doing is uniting us in that peace. In his flesh, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. That was between people, not just between people and God. That one's been broken down and we talk about it all the time, but there's also been a uniting and a peace given to us all together. Uh, if you're taking notes, I encourage you, write down Genesis chapter 4. I think it's very intentional, y'all, that the first story after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden is the story of Cain and Abel. It is to show the great lengths of dysfunction that sin creates. The, the famous verse where God speaks to Cain and says, be careful, your sin's about to crush you. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Literally of his own brother, he's like, what do I care? That dude's not my responsibility. So it took one chapter for sin to make us ready to murder our own brother. I think that's very intentional that that's the first story. And what the gospel does, the good news of, of what Christ has done, is not just unite us to God, but is to unite us to one another to where it should be unthinkable that we would look at anybody and say, am I my brother's keeper in a dismissive way? It's like, yeah, I got my brother's back. That's what the gospel is trying to do. So maybe you're here today and you're hearing these Jew-Gentile issues and you're like, hey, this is a nice Bible history lesson, but what's this got to do with me? We don't got no problems like that. This is America, you know? 
I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not going to sit here and break down for you. It, it has nothing to do with any types of groups of people that I'm going to try to convince you of right now. I want to talk about the heart. I want to talk about that Cain heart that could say of anybody, am I my brother's keeper? That ain't my problem. I think God wants to do something in our hearts through a passage like this that I think gets at this idea of peace and intimacy. Y'all, this changed the Roman Empire. This message changed the Roman Empire. It broke it. It took a few hundred years, but this is what broke it, was the unity that Christ died to purchase. So here's a question I want you thinking about. Because I'm just going to keep it real with y'all. A lot of times in these, these type uh, uh, passages when they get preached, it's like, what's the modern day? We want to think about it out there, hypothetical. And I'm like, let's not do that. Let's, let's think about like right now in your life, is the peace we have with one another in this room leading to radical intimacy, radical pursuit of one another and biblical love? Or are we just like our culture hiding behind? I'm not against anybody. There's no group of people I hate. I'm enlightened, you know, I'm a moderate, like none of us, we know not to hold up no sign. There are no actual cultural dividing balls, maybe, you would say. I would say instead of thinking about it like some hypothetical or some group out there, what about in this room? What is our peace producing? Here at New City, what is it looking like? What is our peace leading towards? Is it leading towards just general, I'm for everybody, or is it leading towards moving towards your brothers and sisters in this room in intimate, co-creative love? That's what I want us thinking through. It's trying to avoid the hypothetical, although I think that's important. What does it look like in this room? Who gets my pursuit of them in intimate friendship? Y'all, we live in an era of tribes. Some of the tribes are ideological. Some of them are ethnic. Some of them are what sins you used to struggle with, you know? Like, we, we have an ability to just group together based off of tribe and based off of the ways we think or, or what we're comfortable with and it can look like an outward tribe like skin color sometimes or it can be we just kind of like the same stuff we think the same stuff or we're all against the same thing right and we get with our tribes it might even be a tribe of how open-minded you are like you got to be x amount open-minded to be in my tribe you know and so what we do is we create that tribe and i'm not against like we're, we're christians right like i know not to be against any other tribe but my intimacy is reserved for my tribe. Are you tracking with that? So I want you to think not just, I'm not against anyone, but who gets the best of your foreness? Think about it like that. And when we start to paint it like that, we all got tribes. Some of them ideological, some of them are external, some blend of external and ideological. And what we tend to do is subconsciously often, because we know not to consciously hold up signs unless your tribe is like, this day and age needs people to hold up signs. There are those as well, right? Where it's like, no, our culture needs to be pushed. I'll hold up the sign. And maybe that's your tribe. I don't know. But the point is, there, there are blanks you can fill in. Like somebody is going to have to become like blank to be somebody I pursue in intimate friendship. Somebody is going to have to give up blank. Somebody is going to have to operate like blank or think like blank or hang out in blank space or like blank things. And what you're doing is creating a, a tribe of intimacy. And it might not be a wall around circumcision, and it might not be a wall around laws, and it might not be y'all are the uncircumcised, but it is kind of similarly, like my intimacy is reserved for a certain group of people. And that in some sense is not that different than what they were going through. And we gotta be very careful when we read passages like this to think we're beyond what they were struggling with. 
and to hide behind. I'm not against anybody, you know? Like, we know in America in 2023, the worst thing you can be called is a bigot, you know? That's about the worst thing you can be called. I'll do a casual convo with anybody. I'm not directly against anybody. But when it comes to seeking your good, you know what your limits are for the types of people you're like, I'll just stick with the head nods, you know? And I'm willing to bet, even in this room, there are probably some of those dynamics if we really analyze that stuff in our hearts and our minds. What if our indifference towards people is more like biblical hate than it is biblical love? You know, when Matthew, in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I used to struggle with verses like that so much because I'm like, God, I ain't got no enemies, you know? Nobody's against me. Nobody hates me. But all day, every day, there are people I, I kind of lean towards indifference. Like, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really like them. You know what I mean? I, you know? And if we really, like, take what Jesus is saying, when he's like, forgive us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, and we, if we can get into the spirit of what Jesus is trying to say, he's trying to say there should be radical, Christ-centered, cross-purchased, intimate pursuit of people not like you who you don't like love, that's a little different than just, well, Lord, I don't got any enemies. Let me go to the next section here in the Sermon on the Mount, you know? I think the Lord wants us to not hide behind the niceties, okay? Let's talk about, we've gone from saints or strangers to saints. Let's talk about siblings. Let's talk about siblings. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Y'all, last week's sermon, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, was the vertical beauty of the gospel. This week is all about the horizontal beauty. Y'all, we said this earlier about us and God, but we could say it about each other as well. The purpose of peace with one another is to provide a flourishing life of intimacy and creativity with our brothers and sisters in Christ under God's leadership. The exact peace we've been brought into with God, we've been brought into with one another. The exact same. Uh, One of my friends who I I was showing this at Port City, we kind of do some sermon prep together. He was like, indifference towards God is a problem. But we, we excuse indifference towards one another all the time. We, we excuse that all the time and just brush over it. And I think the gospel, what makes it so beautiful, it's not just a vertical gospel. Th- this book, the Ephesians gospel identity, is a we thing, not just a me and God thing. It's a us and God thing. And Ephesians ain't going to let us slip out the back door on this one. God is trying to see, help us understand that what he has purchased with us as individuals, he has purchased with us together. If you've ever been in, through any kind of marriage counseling, when, I do, when we do marriage counseling with people, a lot of people have seen this triangle that gets drawn where it's like, hey, God is at the top, here's spouse one, here's spouse two. If you want to get closer to each other, you have to get closer to God. And as you get closer to God, the distance between you shrinks. Maybe you, you've seen something like that. And I think it's a really good image of what this book is saying, Jew-Gentile. Y'all been brought together, chase after God together, and as you do, you get closer to one another. And I think that's a good image for what God intended for the church. It's this triangle of like intimacy increasing with God and with one another. Y'all, here's a helpful, again, I'm just trying to ask questions about the heart level stuff and not just give like specifics of some social cultural thing. I want y'all to think about this, this right here. Anything that could have been a source of hostility 
through the blood of Jesus, should now be a place of hospitality. The church should be the place where niceties are like ground floor. We're moving towards intimacy and hospitality. We are not hiding behind head nods and I'm for you and God bless you and thank you. The blood of Jesus purchases intimacy. It purchases hospitality. It purchases I'm moving towards you. Christ came to me in his flesh was the dividing wall broken down and in the church eventually this will manifest itself ethnically culturally all of those ways that's an automatic but that happens as we just do it in an all-day everyday kind of way pursuing everybody with radical love because christ died for them not for any other reason but they're my brother and sister in christ and as we do it yeah our churches are going to get more diverse yeah they're going to get more diverse ideologically and politically and culturally and socially and all those things but sometimes we can sit in the church and want those external changes. If I want a super diverse environment, I want people from both sides of all these things, but it's like, dude, are we radically just loving the people right in front of us with intimate friendship? We can make it so hypothetical instead of, am I doing that? Am I walking in this kind of hospitality? I'm sure uh, for the Roman Empire to get turned upside down, there were some hard conversations between the Jews and Gentiles, don't you think? Like there was probably like, it wasn't just like, well, oh, great, gang. You know, like, we got unity now. Sweet, you know. Um, Jesus died for you and me. Awesome. This is awesome. This is all great. Y'all, the, the point of the wall being broken down is so that people could live life together. But, yeah, it's a little awkward. And so I think the push on us is like, man, is, is the, has the wall coming down in this church leading to radical intimacy to all types of different people in this room? Age race, ethnicity, culture, ways of thinking, all of it. Likes, dislikes. I think this is the call on us here this weekend. Y'all, we are a family in Christ, and the call is to pass the peace Christ has brought us into. Just pass the peace. As your intimacy, all day, every day, what, what quiet times are is we're trying to foster intimacy with God. And I think God is begging the question, are we fostering intimacy with one another? Are we just kind of doing the, the thing? We're like, hey, you know, this is what's going on in my life. Love you. Take care. See you next week. And I think God would push us, foster intimacy, New City Church, with one another. The secret sauce. I, I'm just trying to be real with y'all. I'm, I'm a lead pastor. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm going off script, Eric. Y'all, I want a church that externally reflects so many of the different things we want to see. We want diverse churches. We want all kinds of stuff. I'm just being real with you as a lead pastor. I would love to have political diversity in my church. I would love to have all kinds of diverse stuff. And it becomes this idea of something I want. But the question hanging over us is, am I just loving the people right in front of me? And I think if we do it the way Christ has bought it and pursue intimacy with one another, God will bring glory to his name through New City Church in the city of Tampa and create a countercultural group of people that can only be explained by his son's blood. That's what he's after, is that what he wants the city to see is a group of people that is only explainable by the blood of Jesus. This only makes sense if Christ died and was raised. That's the only way it makes sense. Why are you loving that person? Why are you pursuing them? Not just hanging behind, have a good week. One more question to ask you guys, and then I'm going to close uh, with reading a story from the Word. 
do you regularly pursue people from a posture of cross-shaped love and peace leading to intimacy and shared creativity? Is that just your normal? I think the push on us is just to do the heart work day by day, minute by minute. It's so easy to hide behind, I'll do that when that hypothetical scenario comes up that we create in our head instead of just tomorrow, today. Do we move towards people we have peace with in Christ? Y'all, I'm going to close with this. Imagine you have one more thing to tell your disciples if you're Jesus the night before you're about to go down. What would you say? You're like, guys, this thing is going to change the world and it's going to cross cultures and ethnic barriers. Would you give them a real logical lesson of what's going to happen? Would you just break it down of the details of the strategy? Years 1 through 200, here's what's going to happen, guys. And then years 200 through 400. And then 800 years from now, this will happen. And then 1,000, would you, that's kind of how I would think, right? Get out the whiteboard. What's the plan, Jesus? Y'all, y'all know this story. This is what Jesus did in John chapter 13. The suspense is building as I turn. Takes me a minute here. This is what Jesus did. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Y'all, Jesus wanted to change the world, and he washed his disciples' feet. If y'all want to change Tampa, just wash each other's feet. John 13, 34 says, By this the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus had this ability to take the hypothetical and make it really super practical. You would have thought he'd just give some speech about what y'all are going to do one day, and instead of that, he got down on his knees and washed their feet. He says, what I've done for you, do to one another. That's so challenging to me. That is not the way I will go about changing the world. So New City, I think the call on us here today is quite simple. It's just, man, move towards people in intimacy. Maybe until it gets really uncomfortable. Like washing somebody's feet, you know. I love that too. Last thing I'll say about it. He said, Peter says, you ain't washing my feet. He says, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. He's saying, Peter, I'm going to love you till it's awkward, then you're going to go love other people till it's awkward. That's a really good way to explain the Christian life. If you want to grow with God, let him love you until it's awkward, and then he's calling you to go do that for other people. That's it. And then with the Jews and the Gentiles, he just broke the dividing wall and said, now y'all do that to each other. I love you, New City. Thank you for letting me be here with you this weekend. I can't wait to hear what you guys do in this city for the glory of God's name and the good of each other. Let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you that you are the foot-washing God, that you are the God who has broken down all the walls 
that we so often create between each other, between us and you. You've broken them all down, and then you get us all in a room, and you say, love each other. It's real practical. It's real in your face. It's real uncomfortable. And God, I just pray that over this church, Lord. I pray that they would pursue one another in radical love that can only be explained by the cross of Jesus Christ and that the city of Tampa would look in and just see something that is otherworldly and makes no sense. And we would all be able to look back and say, I remember when I was hopeless. (laughs) I remember. So Lord, I do pray for anyone in this room who does not know you, Jesus, that today might be the day that they put their trust in you for the first time. And they would be able to start singing, I remember. I remember being hopeless, but now I've found found this Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Would you bless uh, the rest of our time together? In your name we pray. Amen.